welcome to our third episode of Voices of Gen Z on WMCK Radio. My name is Dr. Kirsty Dobbs, and I teach political science courses at Merrimack College. And I'm joined with my colleague, Dr. Harry Wessel, who also teaches political science courses at Merrimack. On this show, we seek to center the voices of Merrimack students in discussions surrounding politics as we gear up for the 2020 presidential elections in November. You can also listen to this conversation as well as previous episodes on our podcast, The Voices of Gen Z, The Future of Democracy, located on Buzzsprout, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This afternoon, Dr. Wassel and I are actually going to talk amongst with each other about um, several issues that are currently arising in terms of youth voter suppression here in the United States. First, we'll hear an excerpt from President Donald Trump talking about Constitution Day and the radicalization of young people in our educational institutions. Then we'll talk about the 26th Amendment and whether we're fearful that this this right for young people to vote at the age of 18 is being threatened in this year's elections. And then we'll hear from Mary McHugh, who is organizing Get Out the Vote efforts here on Merrimack's campus this fall. So first, let's play a little part of Trump's Constitution Day speech. As many of you testified today, the left-wing rioting in Maine are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools. It's gone on far too long. Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks, like those of Howard Zinn, that try to make students ashamed of their own history. Critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into workplace trainings. And it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, and families. So that was President Trump from last Thursday on Constitution Day, talking about how young people are becoming more radicalized by more of a liberal agenda. And on previous episodes of Voices of Gen Z, We've, we've brought that up, that most young people lean towards the left and are more likely to Biden. However, we have heard from many Merrimack students who do lean right and are pro-Trump. So, I don't know, Dr. Russell, you've been teaching longer than I have. What do you, what do you think about young people and their tendency to lean left or right? Is this a result of their education? Is it more of an upbringing? What would be your thoughts on this? Well, I think there's a general, um, a general assumption that's borne by the data that young people tend to take a, I don't want to say radical, but a more, uh, polarized position in youth and that that does tend to moderate somewhat, um, as, as the years go on. You're right. I mean, the, the data shows, uh, uh, Kirsty, you know I'm a, I'm a fan of Pew Research. They've uh, they pretty well established that uh, young people have been swinging left, liberal, progressive uh, in the data, and uh, my guess is that's that's a part of the motivation for the Trump speech, uh, President Trump's speech last week, which is um, to sort of uh, address that. Um, on the other hand, you know, my experience, dare I say how many years I've been in Merrimack, is that Merrimack students 
have been, I would say, fairly consistently more conservative, uh, more Republican. Uh, they're not the same thing, obviously, but they're, they're associated than whatever the trend is going on, uh, out there. Um, Mary's coming on, uh, Professor McHugh is coming on in a bit. She might remember it more specifically, but I do remember that the school newspaper sponsored by some of the departments, I believe us, took a poll, uh, before the 16 election. And, uh, that, uh, the majority of students who were going to vote at that time were going to vote for President Trump. Um, so, you know, given the fact he did not win the popular vote, um, and that, uh, I believe that, uh, Hillary Clinton was, did better among younger people in general. Um, that shows that there was a trend even back then of our students leaning a little bit more conservative. Um, but I think that the data, the socialization data, uh, uh, does tend to point that you tend to moderate, you move a little bit towards the middle <laughs> as you take on uh, more and more responsibilities. That's my thoughts. So I've always, so it was interesting moving from teaching at Loyola in Chicago, which is very liberal city, even though Illinois itself is pretty conservative. And then coming to Merrimack and having students who were a little bit more conservative, but it seemed to be a different flavor of conservatism than what I experienced growing up in Indiana. Or in Indiana, like I would say a lot of our conservatism is rooted in religious values and family mm-hmm. values. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I just don't know, is that the same case here in, in Massachusetts? Cause I, I was always, I was under the impression, right? I'm moving to Massachusetts. It's super liberal progressive state where weed is legal, right? Or in Indiana, that, that would, that's probably never going to happen. Um, but then I was in front of students who's, who did lean more conservative. So where do you think that comes from here on the campus? Like what, what would you say this is, is it religion or is it, is it something else? Well, having grown up in East Baltimore, um, and, you know, I only half jokingly said I was probably 12 or 13 years old before I discovered, um, that Catholicism wasn't a national religion. We, I grew up Methodist and Protestant. My family was, um, literally East Baltimore is one of, uh, it's, it's, it's really an extremely Catholic, uh, city historically, like, like Boston is. Um, I, um, and I had not had any experience. I was at Northeastern before I came to Merrimack. I expected much more of a religious presence at uh, Merrimack than I've ever seen. When I first got here, there was visibly more religion in terms of statues and crosses across campus. Um, but I would say sections of the faculty were more religious than the student body. I've never, I've never found, um, and I don't know if that's sort of just part of uh, the, the the campus student body when I got here. And all right, I'll say it. Late 80s. So start doing the math. Uh, late 80s when I got here and uh, 90s when it was more of a commuter working class, what I used to call beltway 
we call it the expressway up here, but if people know Baltimore, Washington, we call it the, the beltway. I call it beltway crowd, expressway crowd, where most of the kids came from Malden, Melrose. I used to say, say an M name and you, you get half the class. Um, but I, I never had a, I never got a sense of a very strong religious, and I don't know, maybe that was just because they were very passive in some ways, um, in terms of how that, Formulated. If anything, they got to college, and I think they wanted they wanted to run away from the religion. If if they had if they had grown up in a parochial environment, a parochial school environment, and such. Um, where so I'm sorry, Kirsty. So where do, where does their conservatism come from? I think it's m- much more grounded in a conservative economic background, but a more socially liberal background, which I think that's the Massachusetts we know. Right, mm-hmm. the church was always against. And it was always officially against, uh, was pro-life, uh, against abortion, but a majority of Catholics in Massachusetts, including I felt the majority of our students were often pro-choice, not, uh, pro-life. So, um, I think it was the conservatism is an economic conservatism, a working class conservatism. Um, but it was always moderated by more of a social liberal perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, uh, that is, that was new for me because it was as if, and I went to a Jesuit high school, you know, it was just, for me, conservatism was so closely related to religion that I think it, some, some young people did want to run away from that. And they, they then felt like they needed to identify with liberal values in the Democrats because they were so, had some negative feelings towards their actual kind of religious experiences. Like you said, parochial, like, mm-hmm. I know my husband kind of feels that way going to a Catholic high school, you know, it just was not the environment for him. And so I, that kind of motivates him to, I think, be attracted to the Democrats. But then here it just, I'm like, this isn't actually framed as a religious thing at all. It's different. So it's interesting to hear that kind of that, that perspective as that, especially as someone who's still relatively new. To the Can area. I ask you, you said you, you went to a Jesuit school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to a Jesuit high school, and then Loyola is Jesuit. Yeah, I knew that. Like, school. So I knew <laughs> that Loyola was Jesuit. My, my, and of course, Georgetown, and um, I, my, my, I always assumed that the Jesuits took much more of a socially liberal perspective and but you said you you associate that with conservative no no i i guess yeah that's a good correction because jesuits definitely socially liberal and actually kind of in a discussion about the impacts religious institutions can have on on people that so in indiana there was this really crazy thing that happened where we had a catholic high school and then my my Jesuit high school. And you actually had, a, uh, there was a gay couple who taught, one, they both taught, and mm. one taught at my school, one taught at the Catholic school. Mm. The Catholic school teacher ended up not getting his contract renewed because mm. of he was violating their principles being in a in a same-sex marriage. Mm. Where at my high school, they, they kept, they made a statement that they were going to keep them on. And just talking to the high school kids who were at these two schools, like that had a huge impact on them um, because I think overall people were more attracted to the decision that was being made by the Jesuit school, the social liberal thing, 
and there's kids who went to the to the Catholic high school where the the teacher did not get his contract renewed. Mm. They had a very negative kind of they they were really associating their religion with this very with this conservative viewpoint on homosexuality, and they were feeling like they wanted to get away from that. So yeah, so I I totally agree. There's definitely a difference there, um, for sure between those different things. And not saying I mean I don't you know. I don't say that that's something that would be happening here, but in yeah. Indiana, religion and conservatism seem to just really be intertwined. But then I do think I kind of had this unique perspective on it being at a Jesuit high school that we actually saw that that wasn't necessarily the case, um, that they were going to always be oriented towards this social justice, liberal sort of perspective. So. It'll just, I mean, it'll just be interesting to see how those kids in a few years, like how that event in their life, because it was huge, like in our, in our area, it caused a lot of controversy. So it was just interesting. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the things I, I, so I, I now established that I've been here since, you know, the dawn of time, um, uh, the, the, the experiences, you know, in, indirectly, is that the Jesuits tend to be more politically engaged um, than the Augustinians have? I mean, we, we I mean, we have uh, the Augustinians. Uh, some we, I'm not, I'm not an Augustinian, but obviously being at the college, uh, a clear social justice track record that is wonderful. But we've also been um, uh, generally politically neutral. And when you're not at the forefront of any, any political movement, um, I've known many administrations here and, and, uh, and I respect them tremendously in that they, for the most part, let us as say a political science department do our job without getting too, too involved one way or the other politically. Um, and I think, you know, and in many ways, you know, that can be good or bad, but I, I think our students are left to, um, to, to make their decisions. My sense is that they come here and politics is not at the forefront. Um, we don't get a huge, for example, let's, I'm, I'm all over the place, but we don't get a huge number of people coming in as freshmen running to the political science department. In fact, we grow and we grow tremendously because once they get here, they hear about the quality of our faculty, faculty like yourself who packs them in, um, and, and our other, our other colleagues. But I mean, the mere fact that we don't have a huge crowd of people that hit this campus all, all ready to go into politics said something. I think, I think given the number of years I've been here. So I probably, this is probably statistically relevant <laughs> just because of the years I've been here that we we are in general not attracting a, uh, a politically engaged student. At 18 with a recent high school diploma. Um. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I wonder, well, two things kind of back to the kind of Jesuit cat, like Augustinian dichotomy. Mm-hmm. At Loyola, there's huge activism. I mean, so much so that my last year there, actually, some of my students had gotten arrested for staging a protest that was on the, actually behalf of the grad students for like equal pay and unionizing and, and it was like a whole thing. I mean, I knew they were going to be fine. Like I think the arresting was, was more symbolic mm-hmm. in nature than anything. Um, but there was just always protests going on, a lot of activism. And yeah, you don't see that here. 
But I just wonder if the tides are changing, um, given that there seems to be some sort of renewed interest or at least a fringe. There, there seems to be some freshmen here, especially who are seeking opportunities to get more engaged, probably because it's an election year and it's a it's a big election year. Um, and these young people are coming out of high school, having been impacted by COVID and Black Lives Matter. And they're feeling like they want to be engaged. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens on Merrimack's campus because student groups are forming. Young people are really excited to get on this show, even though we don't have any joining us today. Yeah, I sound like, what does she really know what she's talking about? Um, but, uh, you know, there there's groups of students who have just been really active in the classes in ways that even differ from last year. Um right. So, yeah, it would just be interesting to see if that is a reflection of the fact it's a semester with a presidential election with an with a reactionary president, you know, one that seems to get people to be, you know, have some sort of reaction, whether they're pro or anti, um, or whether this is kind of a new thing. Like, is this a Gen Z thing, which some people are also saying that this generation seems to be, you know, well, that's in your, Kirstie, that's in your wheelhouse. What, 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 what is it about this generation that may be developing, evolving, uh, whether on this campus or in general? Right. Yeah, I think it's hard to make predictions about how young people are going to behave in 20 years because their lives are changing so dramatically from 18 to 25. Um, but there does seem to be some things where this generation differs from previous generations. So, I mean, I guess I'll start with the millennials. Millennials define citizenship in a different way than previous generations. Millennials seem to see um, more forms of like informal activism as really important and um, impactful ways to impact politics, like through protest, through social media engagement. They're less inclined to be like, yeah, voting is the best way for me to impact politics. They see so many other ways to get involved. And a lot of that is tied to outreach and social media and on the street activism, which young people have always been more likely to protest. But they are not apathetic. It's not that they don't see themselves as active participants who can make a difference. They do. Um, they just see that the way to do that and the way citizenship works, they, they just define it a little bit differently than previous generations did when they were younger. Um, that informal then, activism, is that tied at all to the evolution of social media? Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. There is definitely that is tied to it. I mean, people are, are, I think, connecting in a lot of different ways for young people, especially Gen Z. Social media isn't a new way for them to get involved. It's the way that they can get involved. A lot of them see it as the only way because they can't vote yet, you know, till they're 18. So they're in high school. They start to get, you know, a lot of young people are more like uh, save the whale instead of go vote. Right. They're like issue oriented. They, they, they start to care about a certain issue. They get involved on social media. And that for them is like the number one foremost way to get involved. And they see that as legitimate way to behave as a citizen in a democracy. And that's okay. kind of new. So it's it's changing, I think, they're defining the norms of what it means to be a democratic citizen. And it kind of started with the millennials um, and is now really being shaped by Gen Z. The other thing about Gen Z that I think is interesting is that 
they are seeing, though, that they can't be totally absent from formal politics. They can't not vote or they can't not aspire to run for a party or make a donation. I think they're kind of seeing that, okay, well, if we only get involved in informal stuff and are only involved on social media, they do understand that's not enough. They do value the ballot box. It it appears to be that way, that they value the ballot box more so than previous generations when they were younger. Um, And they are emerging as like a super diverse group as well. So a lot of the, the social issues, especially around social injustice and Black Lives Matter and racial inequality, they just they they don't understand why we won't have like they, they just don't they don't understand it because gender for them, for example, when I teach my early college class, sometimes I have to remember that for me, I was socialized. Gender is binary, right? Man, you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. And I understand now later on in my life. OK, this is a lot more complicated. Maybe it's not binary with my 16 year old students. They don't even have a preconceived notion that gender is binary. They automatically understand that it's not. And so some of the things that come to us is these are issues. These are inequality. We need to fight for these things. I, they're almost like, a, like, well, of course we do. That's crazy. No matter what, these aren't partisan issues, right? These are public health issues. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more compromise, a lot more um, deliberation across party lines with Gen Z. And I think they're attracted to that sort of thing. So, I mean, who knows? Like just now, I think the oldest Gen Zers are 24. Um, so we don't have a huge sample pool to draw from. But I think there's a lot of different reasons why globally, not just in the U.S., Gen Z is particularly primed to get involved politically because they just have a different worldview. And they're comprised of of their demographics are changing across the world as well. So they're demographically, they're not reflective of previous generations, which of course is going to shape politics for them and their engagement with it. I think it's exciting. I mean, I, I'm a true optimist and why committed to this podcast. Like I feel like a lot of good change can come with this, with this generation. And a lot of it's just related to demographic shifts. Well, I, I, I like to think I'm an optimist too, but I'll, I'll play the, the curmudgeon for a moment and, and ask the question. If, I mean, well, on the one hand, I, I, I'm impressed and, and I've, I've seen it, um, in a lot of studies. This informal activism that you talk about, um, is quite exciting in the sense that we think it all starts and often ends with so many people every four years with an election, presidential election, and that they're maybe engaged in other ways. On the other hand, I'll play, I'll play the contrarian and say that, um, is it sustainable when their activism, and I, I know I, this is sounds, this sounds cruel, but I'll say it when their activism doesn't extend further than the length of their arm where the mm-hmm. phone sits. And what I'm wondering and worrying about, and, you know, I'm from a whole different generation. I'm a baby boomer. Jeez, I know. Um, But, uh, you know, my activism at their age was what the, the mall in Washington, DC. And that's not a shopping place. That's a, that's a physical place we go, we went to, to protest. And I still remember it and I can still feel a chill when I think about when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old and, uh, obviously, I ended up 
political science and, and, and teaching forever. But I, I guess I'm just asking, is it going to be sustain, sustainable when they're not really physically engaged? Or am I being what I am, an old guy who doesn't get it? No, I mean, I, I don't think that it's organically sustainable. I think if we just continue teaching the same civics education lessons we've been teaching for decades and we still approach young people as kind of these apathetic, you know, future political citizens, political citizens, it's not sustainable um, because their attention span, everyone's attention span is short, especially on social media. And, and they're heavily influenced on social media, too, to get involved in other things so they, they can be distracted very easily. So that's why I think organically, no, not sustainable. But if we start to offer as much support as we can, I think older generations to help the younger generation figure out what's the best way for them to be active and to make change, it could be incredibly um, important, I think, for the future of our survival as a democracy. And, and I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but I think the more we reach out to youth, we center their voices, we constantly are critical of the you know, pedagogical practices that we use in the classroom to get young people engaged with material, what we put in civics lessons. Like, I think as long as we're making sure that that's evolving along with this generation and they get the support that they need, they could be really powerful actors that really do change the world, I think, down the road. And and I think academics certainly have a, a huge role to play in that, especially on college campuses, as young people start to get exposed to new ideas and different ways of thinking and experience freedom. And when they come to our college, whether that's Merrimack or wherever, that we just, we play this supportive role and to remember to lead from behind, because if we start just telling them how they should get involved or what they should do, I think we're going to turn them off. It has to be something that they shape and define themselves, but we just need to be there as, as, as in support. So that's kind of my, I guess my way to shirk that answer a little bit. I, basically, mm-hmm. I don't know, but my intuition is that, no, it's not sustainable. And But we can't just write them off as like, oh, they're just social media, you know, people. Like they don't, you know, you just write a tweet. What do you actually do for the world? Because to them, that is something and it's meaningful. We need to recognize that. And then we think, okay, now how can we take that emotion and that activism and funnel it in other ways that are also impactful um, and create bridges for them instead of putting them in sort of this silo that's like, oh, just my social media influencers. They just want to sit on the couch and, you know, Facebook, they think they're making a difference, but they're not. I think they're primed to make a difference. We just have to make sure that they know of those avenues because they are easily distracted. Mm. Yeah. And I worry, I, I agree completely. And I worry though that this, combination of this pandemic, which is basically shut them down for six months in so many ways, is going to contribute to that passivity and apathy. And then if in, you know, whatever it is, 45 days, if this election, whatever the outcome, if this election is all is in question in terms of legitimacy and those kinds of issues, what kind of long-term impact that's going to have on their budding activism, as you've described. Exactly. And then the other fear, too, is that there are movements now where colleges, there seems to be backlash right now where states that with Republican governors like Texas, for example, 
implemented some strange new law that you could only have a polling center location open if it was open for all of the early voting days. So that that basically made the colleges in Texas not able to open polling stations, if I'm remembering this correctly. And it's actually before the Supreme Court right now because it's like it's seen as a direct threat to the 26th Amendment for young people, that their their actual right to vote is being threatened. I think there's another law and I forget where it's at, um, but it's in a conservative state where you can only file for a mail in ballot if you're over the age of 65. And that actually was shot down because it was seen as unconstitutional because it violates the 26th Amendment, that you can't make voting rules based on age, that discriminate based on age. So I really hope that these things that are kind of popping up as we get closer to the elections, they're largely seen as an attempt to suppress youth turnout, um, that that doesn't turn off young people as well. And and we'll have uh, Professor McHugh on here hopefully soon. She taught till 1.30, so hopefully she'll be joining us soon. But she, along with the political science department and Merrimack, you know, have been working on ways to actually to make sure that that doesn't happen, that youth voter turnout, you know, stays strong, at least in our area, and that students here at Merrimack have the opportunity to vote if that's something that they want to do. Um, because it's going to be confusing this year with mail-in ballots and I've had many students on the very first day of intro to U.S. politics. I was like, okay, does anyone have any questions? And I was thinking like a syllabus, something like that. And one student was like, how do I vote? And I was like, so taken aback. I was like, oh, uh, okay, let's start. Okay. Did you, you know, like, okay, where are we at right now? Like, did you register? Like, do you need to, where do you live? You know, type of deal. But it was just so funny that that was like, she's in our U.S. politics class. Surely I can tell her how she can vote. Um, and it's something that they wanted. So I'm hoping that little experience of that one student is reflective of other Merrimack students here, that they are wanting to vote. It's just confusing because it's COVID and, and there's a bunch of weird stuff going on. And Mary hopefully will be on soon to kind of help us learn about the ways that Merrimack students will be able to vote. And even if she doesn't, wasn't able to join us, um, we can certainly, you know, next week, talk a little bit about those ways that students can can access those resources on campus. Do you think, uh, uh, do you think that, that our students in that, that age group, that Gen Z group, um, is impacted by this ongoing discussion about whether mail-in voting is legitimate or not? Or do you, do you think they, they're impacted at all? I think they are. We actually just talked about this last week because we focused on voter suppression um, and we talked about the mail-in ballots and you know, voter fraud, right, is kind of like the major thing. And is voter fraud really an issue in U.S. politics? And you know, the data is showing it's really, it's really inconsequential, the number of cases that are legitimate fraud. And But in their reflection assignment, you know, where they're asked, is voter fraud real? it was very split. Like some students were like, nah, based on the data, it's not a big deal. I think mail-in voting will be fine. And then other students were very fearful of it. And I think that word fraud just really Mm -hmm. just impacts people, you know, no matter what the data says. Like if you say mail-in voting can lead to fraud, you're just kind of like, well, shoot, like fraud's a big word. And so, and I told them like, I was like, I don't no, I mean, sure, there is instances that we can point to in other countries that do mail-in voting that have low voter fraud. But we've never had in the United States this extensive, you know, amount of mail-in voting ever before. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know whether it's going to result in fraud or not. But 
how do you feel about it? And I, it seemed like they were kind of, eh, it's something I need to do. I have to do because I live in Maine, but I'm here. But they weren't warm and fuzzy about it, which is just interesting. Well, we had a student who brought this up in our, just in our few programs that there is a, there's, there is out there a concern and it's being promoted by the political right that there are people in this country illegally and then they make that link to the illegalities that they may engage in. And then the next thing we hear is that there's a link to the question of voter illegalities or frauds. Um, and I'm just putting that out there, but I mean, do you see this as a, as a, a political agenda? And is it impacting one group of students differently, maybe one group of Gen Zers than others? I, yes, I would, I would say so without having, you know, pulled them and done any sort of real systematic analysis of it, but just my reading of it and kind of getting a feel, I think, you know, of what students maybe lean conservative or left, you know, I don't really know, but it's just a feeling that they, it is kind of wrapped up in that. The students who do, you know, maybe lean more conservative, plan on voting Republican, they are very fearful of fraud and mail-in voter fraud. The students who lean more liberal are just seeing it as something that's being touted by the Republicans, you know, as a way to suppress turnout. And I, I think they're aware of that. I and mean, that's definitely how it's being framed in the media. So maybe they're just, you know, digesting that. And it's not really something they're thinking of on their own. Um, but yeah, I, my intuition is that it is kind of divided partisan wise right now. But the interesting thing and why I love teaching is that young people are also not a hundred percent in their convictions. Like they're open, you know, to what, to, to, to kind of being told or being exposed to alternative points of view. So even if they say that, I know they're still listening to the other side because they're just, they're young and they're still forming their identity. And some of them for the very first time are thinking about these things for the first time. So you know, I don't I don't think I can ever say this is how they feel, because I think this is how they feel in that moment and that day. But it might be different tomorrow. It's good news to hear that they that they have an open mind. That's what we need. To, if, if the young people don't have an open mind, we're in trouble. <laughs> I mean, even if they, you know, are very strongly attached right, to their, the way their parents voted or the way they grew up, you do see them things chip away a little bit, I think, easier than, and maybe it's just the context, right? There's a power dynamic with me as a professor in the front talking to them. They're not going to say, you're completely wrong and I'm not going to listen to you, right? So maybe it's really just a reflection of that. But yeah, I mean, I'd like to think. But before we move on, I just have a quick PSA. Be a hero blood CTA. The need for blood is constant from accident victims and premature babies to cancer patients and those with blood disorders. Every day, heroes like you can help save up to three lives with just one blood donation. Be a hero, donate blood, make your appointment today. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. And this is just a reminder that you're listening to Voices of Gen Z on WMCK Radio. I like that PSA. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a whole book here. And what, about the, Red what about the whole fraud, uh, the voter fraud thing and, and its relationship to um, the fake news? Because you're right. I don't think it, you didn't need to pull uh, pull any punches there. 
I've been looking at the evidence, and the reality is there isn't any evidence. There are anecdotal stories that you hear all the time and always will be, um, but the evidence is overwhelmingly that we aren't, haven't yet been vulnerable to voter fraud in any significant numbers, but yet there's a lot of um, misinformation and disinformation. If we ever do a media clip, we can go into the difference between misinformation and disinformation. But for whatever reason, it's out there. Um, do you see that impacting? Or my hope is, as you said, they have such an open mind, they can see through all the uh-huh. They can see the forest through all these trees. No, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think they unfortunately get most, if not all, of their information about politics via social media. And to my understanding, the way social media works, they're going to show you the same stuff that you're looking at, put you down a rabbit hole. So they're not going to show in your mini feed your home feed alternative perspectives on this issue or whether, you know, voter fraud is a real issue this year or not. Here's the varying evidence is going to show if you clicked on mail-in voting is fraudulent one time, you're going to keep getting information that's going to support that worldview. Um, and so I think they're more likely to see one-sided information and be highly, they're highly impressionable. So they're, they're going to be susceptible to that. Um, but with keeping in mind that, a lot of young people are more pro-Biden and anti-Trump at this moment. Or let me say this, they're more anti-Trump, and then they're kind of irrelevant about Biden. Um, even my... Um, Settle for or, Biden. <laughs> what was that? Settle for Biden is the theme we kept hearing from our students. And, uh, and I don't know if I'm crossing a line here, but there's a very good documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Uh, about, uh, this whole question of algorithms and, and how news, I mean, how information is, is, uh, you know, directed left and right to, a, to, uh, to everyone. And unfortunately, starting with people who get most of their news off of social media. Um, looks like Mary yeah. may not be able to join us. Yeah, she might not be able to. I told well, her we had. Yeah, but we'll, if if we don't hear from her this week, we will for okay. sure from her down the okay, road. We'll get her for a whole program. <laughs> exactly. Did you end up watching? There's a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Have yeah. you seen that? Oh, that's um, what I just said. Yeah. Oh right. Okay, so that was in reference to that. I thought it was just in general. Yeah, yeah. No, that was. No, no. Oh, you saw it too. Yeah, yeah, I loved yeah, it. Well, well, yeah, too. wasn't it one? There we go. There we go. I thought it was quite wonderful. Um. I'm going to be showing it in my media and politics class. Uh, they can't wait for me to get to the 21st century and do Facebook and Twitter. And I keep <laughs> promising them I am, but they have to, you know, bear with the 240 years of media development. And I'm, I'm up to the late 20th century, but yeah, that's, that's coming down the road and that's going to be uh, on my list of things for us to watch. I think it's very well done. Yeah. Very, um, Definitely. It made me actually like get rid of my apps on my phone, <laughs> uh, all that sort of stuff. So it was well, my, my, our colleague, uh, Dr. Russell, Alice, Dr. Allison Russell, who, uh, who's a cybersecurity expert, um, uh, shamed me into getting, getting away from Facebook and all of that for, for, for security reasons. Now there's even more reasons in terms of disinformation, misinformation. 
And do you think as someone who studies the media and politics, like what are your views about the Russian and Iranian kind of influence on social media in our elections this year? Is it is it like is it really going to dampen the integrity of our elections? Is it something we should be concerned about? I am very concerned about it. Uh, I don't have that tech technical uh, knowledge. I think I would, I would actually ask Allison about this. Um, we know that they are able to uh, plug in and they have the algorithms to get the information they need to the people who are most receptive. You know, even Brexit, frankly, totally unrelated to what we're talking about, us and the Russians and the Ukrainians. No, there's no Ukrainian effect. It's a, it's a Russian us effect. But even if you just look as an isolated example of what took place with the Brexit vote, um, totally unrelated to us and what we're worried about, about whether they're, they're, they, they slammed Hillary or they promoted Trump, whichever, the whole Brexit um, experience shows that uh, once what you, you could marshal social media in this case, I think it was Facebook primarily, uh, to be able to get a message to the most, most receptive people possible. I mean, keep it, keep in mind in the end, they're not literally pushing a button or hitting a switch. They're not physically voting. They're influencing people. So it's always somewhat indirect, but the fact is you're able to. You know, they're not pre- they're not going after the choir and they're not going after the enemy. They're going after the undecideds. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is a little bit of tweaking back then. Now it's full force of being able to, to, to focus on a key number of people that can, that can swing an election. And yes, I think 16 was a case where it was swung by that. This now that's disinformation. They had a they had a cause. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the breaking it down. I think by age would be interesting yeah. to see, right? Like that question you brought up earlier is, are they able to see through the fog, right? Because they are social media savvy. Um, I don't know. We need some maybe experiments run that give people of different ages messages on social media and see what the reactions are. I don't know. Um, I'm going to end with one more. We have one more PSA for the day, um, and it's about chili. Make sure your leftovers are as safe as they are delicious. Put them in a shallow container and get them into your refrigerator as soon as possible. Spoiled leftovers make you very sick or worse. One in six Americans will get sick from food poisoning this year, and roughly 3,000 will die. But you can keep your family safer by chilling food promptly and properly. Learn more about this and other important information. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. That's foodsafety.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. So there you go. I just made chili last night, so maybe I (laughs) need to check those steps. Um, Well, anyways, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Wessel. I'm sure we'll hear from Mary McHugh. Um, in the next few weeks to talk about how Merrimack students can get registered to vote and some of the events that we have leading up to the elections. Remember, the first round of debates is starting next week, the 27th. 29th, whatever the 29th, 29th is. 29th, and we'll have a, a discussion about that, of course, on yeah. Voices of Gen Z. And remember to follow us on our podcast on Spotify, Apple iTunes, or Buzzsprout, the Voices of Gen Z, Future of Democracy. Thank you.